this is your welcoming ceremony into the best worst club. It's the club that none of us want to be a part of, with the best kind of people. We are the one in ten, doing our very best at living with endometriosis. Think of this podcast as your space to be understood, uplifted, and plugged into the thriving endo community. This disease is a beast to live with. It's one that crosses into taboo territory, and the road to management is peppered with obstacles. Tune in weekly to be equipped with research-based information and tangible tools to navigate the medical system as a fierce self-advocate. To be moved by other warriors' raw and real stories while contributing to spreading awareness of our realities and to glean helpful life hacks and coping skills from perspectives of people who truly get it. I'm your host and fellow Indo warrior, Mariah Battaglia, better known as the Indo doula on IG. And while I hate that you're part of the club, I hope you'll stay. Make sure to follow the show so you don't miss any of the latest episodes and upcoming guests. The following episode may contain topics or experiences that could be triggering to some and are of mature nature. Talk of depression, medical trauma, disordered eating, and other sensitive issues may be talked about. Please listen at your own discretion and remember that this podcast is never meant to be taken as medical advice. Please consult your doctor or therapist about any medical or mental health questions you have. We are taking a brief break from the series, It's Not Just a Bad Period, just for this week, and it will resume again next Friday. So in the meantime, I have a deep dive episode. This will be part one, I believe. I have a feeling that a part two will need to come out after this, but I think you will find it very interesting. This will be a little bit more involved So I will say if you are brand new to endometriosis and just learning the realities of the quality of care we receive in the medical field, this episode might be a little overwhelming. However, it is going to be packed full with some really research-backed information that starts to paint the picture of why endometriosis is treated the way it is in the medical community and how that's changed since the drug Orlissa came on the market. The first FDA-approved drug for the treatment of endometriosis pain since Lupron, which Lupron was approved for use with endometriosis in 2001. So it's a big deal in the medical field. Orlissa was FDA-approved in 2018 and it hit the market in 2019. I've pulled info like AbbVie's revenue from Orlissa, which AbbVie is the pharmaceutical company that makes Orlissa and owns its patent. From I've pulled this income, the revenue from them from 2021 and 2022 because those reports just came out. And then I kind of just let my research take me where it was going to take me. And by doing that, I felt like 
<laughs> if you're on my Instagram, you've probably heard me say being an Indo warrior can feel like you're living in a conspiracy against Indo warriors. And doing this research kind of just solidified that more. I feel like I could be one of those people from like a suspenseful movie, like in my office with a whole wall dedicated to clues I'm finding and push pins with strings tied to them, connecting the clues like from here to there and this one to that one. Yeah, it gets pretty wild. <laughs> so I'm going to try to make this easy to digest and easy to follow as possible because it can get a little hairy especially if you aren't as familiar with the misconceptions and the outdated medical theories that most of today's endo medical quote-unquote treatments are based on. Okay, so with all that being said, let's dive in. I think we first need to lay down a foundation, a picture of what AbbVie was doing before Alyssa hit the market. One, because it better depicts its motives, and two, there seems to be a pattern here that's important to note and I'll point out. So in 2016, Humera's core patent, patent 382, expired, which triggered the entry of biosimilar competitors to try and enter the market. I'm going to be reading some direct excerpts from articles because I found you just can't, it just can't be summed up. You have to hear it in its full. So this is from a Harvard Law blog, and it says, quote, but when a biosimilar manufacturer attempts to enter the market, it must do so without infringing the brand company's patents on the original biologic. With, a, with such a dense thicket of patents surrounding Humera, it was virtually impossible for biosimilar companies to attempt market entry without infringing on at least some of those patents. Instead of attempting to defend themselves in expensive, time-consuming patent infringement litigation, all six of the companies with biosimilars for Humera in the pipeline chose to settle with AbbVie. According to the terms of the settlement, the biosimilar companies would stay out of the U.S. market for several more years, while AbbVie permitted them to enter the lucrative European market. In this manner, AbbVie has been able to control the U.S. market and continue to increase the price of one of the world's best-selling drugs relentlessly. In 2019 alone, Humira generated $19.7 billion in revenue, an impressive financial return attributable mainly to its high price of $72,000 per year, end quote. In 2017, articles were, articles were published citing things like, quote, Humera's, Humera remains AbbVie's greatest strength and its biggest potential weakness. Sales for the drug continue to grow at a solid pace, more than 11% year-over-year in the third quarter. However, Humera still accounts for 63% of AbbVie's total revenue. That puts the company at risk if any problems arise for the drug. End quote. 
In 2018, headlines read, quote, Think Abby can't live without Humira? Check out today's blockbuster Orlissa nod, end quote. The article went, went on to say, quote, one of Abby's most highly anticipated pipeline candidates has reached the regulatory finish line. On Tuesday, the FDA approved Orlissa, a treatment for pain associated with endometriosis, and a potential blockbuster contributor to Abby's life after Humero, Humera biosimilars hit. End quote. Very interesting, right? Are you seeing the picture that's being painted here? On Tuesday, the Illinois drug maker, along with partner Neurocrin, said the FDA had approved the treatment for pain associated with endometriosis and the first oral drug to win the agency's favor for those patients in over a decade, and it's expected to roll out in early August, bearing a price tag of $845 per month. U.S. regulatory regulatories green-lighted the product at two dosage strengths, 150 milligram for up to 24 months and 200 milligrams for up to six months. And they didn't add black box warnings or monitoring requirements for bone mineral density changes, Goldman Sachs analysis Jamie Rubin wrote in a note to clients. That's good news, she wrote. Quote, we view the 24-month duration and clean safety labeling as a good outcome for the drug, end quote. She wrote, noting that they should ease investors' concerns about the drug safety. Those concerns ramped up after European regulators, regulators flagged liver injury reports among patients taking allergens as Maya, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce that. I am so sorry. I am also dyslexic, so you can hear me fumbling over my words a little bit. But, you know, we're going to move on. <laughs> um, this is a uterine fibroid drug seeking FDA approval. Orlissa could eventually compete against Allegrin's therapy if it hits the U.S. market and if Orlissa can, w- can win a second indication. End quote. So what we have so far is that Humera makes up the majority of AbbVie's revenue, and in 2016, the company knew their meal ticket was up with the expiration of its patents on Humera. In 2017, Orlissa was put up for FDA approval and received its approval in 2018. AbbVie slaps on a $10,000 a year price tag for Orlissa. Quote, AbbVie expects the drug to eventually be a multi-billion dollar product, it said, generating $1 billion to $2 billion a year just from endometriosis. Analysts have forecast the drug to be to top $1 billion in revenue by 2022, according to Thomson Reuters data. Ugh, it makes me sick to my stomach to read that. Like they're celebrating the potential income generated from this god-awful drug that supposedly treats our god-awful pain, which I want 
to make that point crystal clear as well. Abvi admits that Orlissa does not treat or slow the growth of endometriosis. It's only design is to reduce the pain experienced with endometriosis by affecting the pituitary gland, which I'm not going to try to explain what exactly that means because I don't even understand it myself. I probably said it wrong. <laughs> but I just want to make it clear that Orlissa does nothing to actually treat the disease itself. I also want to highlight the point about Abby's ability to avoid a black box warning for liver damage, osteoporosis, and suicidal thoughts. This is gut-wrenching and truly dangerous. We all have the right to choose what is best for our bodies, our health, and our future. And I'm not here to tell you there's a one-size-fits-all approach to endometriosis, because there isn't. And look, I get it. I get the pain and symptoms we experience can make you feel desperate for relief, willing to try just about anything. It's absolutely sinister and predatory to take endo-warriors into doctor's offices, giving Orlissa as a chance to gain back their quality of life without disclosing all the risk and need for add-back therapy. Even though Abby was able to avoid that precondition, this is where it gets really dark in my opinion. I think it's medically negligent to create a drug specific for those living with endometriosis, those who are already at an increased risk for depression that causes an increased risk of suicidal thoughts and then not fully disclose this to even boast that avoiding the black box warning is good news. It should be criminal. Did you know that during the clinical trials for Alyssa, one participant actually took her own life? It was difficult to find any details on this other than she was a 44-year-old woman who received 31 days of Orlissa at 150 milligrams once daily. She then completed suicide two days after Orlissa discontinuation. She had no relevant past medical history and some life stressors were noted. It just seems so irresponsible to note mood swings, depression, and suicidal thoughts as a real risk of the drug, but hide that information inside the pharmaceutical pamphlets they hand out to the doctors. And the doctors peddling this shit without fair warning should be held responsible too. I also want to say, I speak about this risk from firsthand experience. No, I personally have never taken Orlissa, but highly considered it. Until talking with our endo community and to warriors who have been on the drug, each one warning me of the mental side effects. Mention of terrible night sweats, hot flashes, and migraines came up too. But their shift in the, their mental state while on Orlissa was what dominated our conversations. When my local gynecologist suggested Orlissa was the only thing left for me to try, 
I stated that I needed to think about it and do some more research because I was greatly concerned about my mental health. I went as far as letting her know I was in therapy, on antidepressants, and had been suicidal in the past. And during this first visit, my concerns seemed to be heard, but not taken into too much consideration. The doctor stated she would have me come in monthly to check on my mental health, which that in itself is kind of a red flag. Like, what does a gynecologist have to do with treating mental illness? But by my next appointment, things things changed and it felt like suddenly it wasn't even a cause for worry. I asked about add back therapy because of the risk of osteoporosis and again felt like my concerns were shuffed off. I like I was being overly dramatic and Google educated. The only reason I knew to worry about the mental health risk and to ask about add back therapy was because of our community, not because of anything a medical professional told me. How fucked up is that? We trust these people with our lives, literally. And it's just so disheartening to do a little bit of digging and discover the nasty truth for yourself. This is quite literally just the tip of the iceberg. I have so much more saved in my notes to discuss on our next episode. I know I speak a lot about the fucked up things that affect affect endo, and I by no means want to leave you feeling hopeless, because we aren't hopeless. And every day, with every post, every conversation, every podcast episode, whatever it may be, we are raising awareness about the systemic injustices we face. And one day, calling all of this shit out is going to change things for endo warriors for the better. If you want to know more about Orlissa and its side effects, I highly recommend heading over to drugs.com and reading the user reviews. Then come back here to make sure to tune in for part two of the AbbVie deep dive. And as always, my sources will be linked in the show notes so you can look over any of this information yourself. Thank you for being here. May the spoons be ever in your favor. Thank you for tuning in to the Best Worst Club podcast. If you could do us the biggest favor and help us reach more Indo Warriors, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. And take a selfie of you listening or a screenshot and share it on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next week, Indo Warrior.